Morning, everyone. So glad you are with us. There's a lot of news to get to this morning. Let's start with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 26th. Well, President Biden hits the auto workers picket line today in an historic first for a sitting president. Also, Trump will be there tomorrow as he skips a Republican debate to also speak with union auto workers in the Motor City. And breaking overnight, the debate stage is now set for the second GOP primary debate, the one Trump will not attend. DeSantis, Haley, Scott, Ramaswamy, Pence, Christie, and Burgum, they all made the cut. Asa Hutchinson did not. And the House is back in session today, but there is no deal in sight without one. The federal government shuts down in just four days. Former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson painting a chaotic picture of the last days of the Trump presidency. This all in her new book, where she says Trump told his chief of staff, quote, I don't want people to know we lost. This is embarrassing. And police are looking for this man in connection with the fentanyl daycare death. Prosecutors say he fled through a back alley carrying two bags. CNN This Morning starts right now. So it's interesting. Biden's leaving Washington today. Yep. The House Senate have to figure out how to keep us Everything's open. Everything's going great. Everything's going great. great. But the fact that he's going to Michigan to the picket line with auto workers never happened before. There is no historic precedent for this. I think it underscores the importance not just of one labor dispute, but the role both politically, policy and macroeconomically that yeah. this is all playing out right now as we head towards an election year. To be followed by Trump. Yes. Who, by the way, said he was going there first, right? He did indeed. All right. We'll watch that very closely because just hours from now, President Biden will go to that picket line. He will be with those workers in Michigan for their continuing strike against the big three automakers, this is unprecedented for a sitting U.S. president. And it comes just one day, as Poppy noted before, Donald Trump is planning his own visit to Detroit to speak to auto workers. These dueling visits to a battleground state could be our clearest preview yet of a potential Biden-Trump rematch next year as they fight for the union's crucial endorsement. Now, notably, a source tells CNN, the president of the United Auto Workers Union will be joining Biden on the picket line. But the union is not involved with Trump's visit. Jeremy Dimon live at the White House with a lot more. This is interesting because a week ago, the White House was pulling back their advisors on this issue to not go to Michigan. Now the president's going. What's he going to do and say? Yeah, no doubt about it. And it shows uh, one sign is that there's been progress in these talks. And that's perhaps why the president is choosing this moment now to go there. But it also uh, shows this potential contrast with former President Trump, who is going to Michigan uh, tomorrow uh, to address uh, current and former uh, union members. Now, the White House officially denies uh, that there is any connection between the president's visit and the former president's plans to deliver speech in Detroit tomorrow. But look at this White House fact sheet that the White House released just this morning talking about the fact that former President Trump uh, talked a big game but did not deliver in the way that President Biden has for union workers, contrasting President Biden's economic record, his record on manufacturing, and his record specifically with unions with that of the former presidents. Talking, for example, about uh, bringing manufacturing back to the United States, policies that incentivize uh, union uh, uh, work uh, to be done with that manufacturing, comparing that 
to uh, the Trump tax cuts, which the Biden administration says did not benefit the working class. But this will certainly be uh, one of our first signs of a preview of this potential 2024 matchup, as both of these candidates have repeatedly tried to vie for that working class vote. President Biden has called himself the most pro-union president, and he has racked up a series of union endorsements. The one endorsement he has yet to secure, though, is that of the UAWs, and that is perhaps a part of his visit today, is to do the work to try and get that endorsement. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, is expected to be with President Biden uh, as uh, the the president uh, goes to the picket line today in Wayne County, Michigan. We don't know exactly where that will be, but once again, an opportunity for President Biden to tout his pro-union bona fides. Mm -hmm. But whether or not he supports everything the UAW is doing here, the White House press secretary yesterday said simply the president is standing with union workers, but she would not say whether he endorses all of their positions in these negotiations. Uh, Phil, Poppy. That's important to know. Yeah. Uh, among them, a four-day work week. Do they stand behind the specifics or not? Jeremy, thanks very much. Well, right down the road of Pennsylvania Avenue, the House is back in session today with just four days until the government shuts down. And pressure is continuing to mount on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who must decide between shutting down or working with Democrats and risk losing his job. Now, the Biden administration is warning of dire consequences if the government cannot fund itself, saying, quote, the speaker has to do his job. Today, lawmakers are scheduled to at least start the procedural route of voting on four spending bills. But each one of those bills still faces very real uncertainty on the House floor. Seeing as Lauren Fox joins us now. Lauren, look, I don't really want to focus on the procedural hurdles or even necessarily the messaging bills that they're you trying know? to move this week. I do, but I, I, I'm cognizant that Fox and I could do this for like three hours. Uh, <laughs> tell me the end game here. The Senate's starting to move on something. The House is continuing to negotiate. Four days left. Where do things actually stand? Yeah, Phil, let's start with the Senate, because that is the piece of legislation that, if it can get passed out of that chamber, could potentially stave off a shutdown on Saturday at midnight. The Senate negotiators between Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's staff and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's staff, they continued to work into the night last night, trying to find a path forward that would fund the government for just a matter of weeks at this point. It would not be a one-year spending bill, but just a short-term stopgap to get them over that deadline. The expectation is that bill may not be able to include the full supplemental funding for Ukraine aid. That is because you have warnings from conservatives like Senator Rand Paul, who are arguing they will slow down the process to get this bill moving through the Senate. And given the fact there are time constraints because this deadline is coming Saturday night, that is a big consideration here for Republicans and Democrats, even though there are plenty of members in that chamber who would like to include disaster aid and Ukraine funding. So those pieces are still being negotiated and worked out. But given the fact that we don't have many, much time left, Phil, you may see a situation where that bill may be unveiled as soon as today. Meanwhile, in the House of Representatives, there still is not a clear path forward. There is still not consensus among House Republicans on what a short-term solution would even look like. That is setting up the scenario that if the Senate can pass their bill quickly and out of their chamber, they could potentially put McCarthy in a position where he would be jammed, as we say in congressional speak, by the United States Senate and then would have to make that very important and impactful decision. Mm -hmm. Does he put this negotiated piece of legislation on the floor? And would he risk potentially ending his speakership over that? The inevitable endgame here of if House Republicans don't pass anything, they are going to get jammed by the Senate and everyone knows it. And yet here we are. Four days, 17 hours, 52 minutes left, I believe, on the clock. Lauren probably won't sleep until 
we get through all of that. Lauren Fox, thank you. Well, this new overnight, Donald Trump fighting back against the special counsel Jack Smith's request for a gag order in his federal election probe. His lawyers say it would violate his right to free speech. They're accusing prosecutors of trying to silence Trump as he is running for president. The special counsel requested a gag order to block Trump from threatening or intimidating witnesses on social media and to prevent him from tainting the jury pool. But Trump's legal team is urging the judge to reject that request. In a court filing overnight, they claim it would strip Trump, quote, of his First Amendment freedoms during the most important months of his campaign against President Biden. Let's bring in CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance. Uh, Caitlin, Trump's lawyers said this gag order would be unconstitutional. What happens next year? Well, the judge is going to have to determine what to do here because this is actually a pretty important debate to be had. It is one that Donald Trump's team is framing as political censorship. They're saying he shouldn't be restricted. It's not fair. He's running for president. There was an indictment against him that allowed the special counsel to levy the charges. There's Joe Biden out there also campaigning for president. Not the same thing because Trump is a criminal defendant here. But that's the 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 plane that they want to be talking about this on. Whereas the Justice Department, they want to be making sure that the trial that Donald Trump is going to have in Washington, D.C., in federal court scheduled for March is fair so that witnesses uh, aren't chilled in some way and so that jurors come into that courtroom trusting the judge and having an open mind to the witnesses that are testifying. One of the things that Trump's team said in this filing overnight, the proposed gag order is nothing more than an obvious attempt by the Biden administration to unlawfully silence its most prominent political opponent. Now, it isn't as broad as saying Donald Trump can't speak at all about the case, at least what the Justice Department is asking for. We don't know what the judge is going to do here, but what the Justice Department wants is they want some limitations on what Donald Trump can say about the specific people in this case, witnesses, the judge, the prosecutors, things that he can say that could damage their credibility or possibly be inflammatory or harassment toward them. So that's the restriction that they want, but it is going to be in the judge's court. And Whenever this judge, Tanya Chutkin, does something here to respond to the Justice Department's ask, there's going to be a question of what the consequence could be for Donald Trump. His lawyers say in the filing, let's be clear, the prosecution hopes to create a contempt trap for President Trump and his attorneys. So at the end of the day, there's going to be a question that if there is something like this put over Donald Trump, a limited gag order, does is that legal, first of all? And second of all, is it something that could chill his his rights uh, and could be something that could cause him uh, or the judge to want to put him in jail or restrict him even further if he doesn't follow it. Yeah. Huge questions. No precedent. Uh, uncharted territory for sure. Caitlin Polans, keep us posted. Thank you. So the city of El Paso is now grappling with about 2000 migrant encounters a day at the border. Officials there warning this influx is not stopping anytime soon. Shelter capacity now running out in that city. And for the first time since those deadly wildfires ravaged Maui, Lahaina residents are returning to the burn zone to see the damage for themselves. It's hard to process. It looks weird. It looks like out of a, a horror movie. Welcome back. Well, this morning, the migrant crisis is escalating. There's a new report that says the U.S. immigration courts have a backlog of 2.6 million cases, thousands more migrants arriving at the border each day, hundreds of them already sleeping on the streets in El Paso, Texas. The mayor 
says his city is just tapped out. Meantime, in Eagle Pass, Texas, the mayor there is pleading for help as he plans to extend the city's emergency disaster declaration today. We need bigger action, better action from our federal government and the, the, the Mexican government as well. It's impacting our safety, it's impacting our economy. It's just a mess. Our Rosa Flores, following all of this, she joins us live from Houston. You're on the ground. You're seeing this. And for people who want to put context to that number, almost three million cases waiting to go through the immigration courts, those are asylum seekers. And when those are backed up, everything else gets backed up. You know, and, and what all of these migrants were arriving at the U.S. southern border poppy probably don't know is that they're entering this backlog system. As you mentioned, there are about 2.6 million deportation cases that are on the docket right now. This is according to a Syracuse University group that analyzes federal data, and they found that from October of last year to August of this year, 1.2 million new cases. Now, what this means, Poppy, and this is important, when migrants cross the border illegally, what happens is law enforcement process them. They have to determine at that point if these individuals have a legal basis to stay in the United States. If not, they are deported. If they're able to stay, they get something called an NTA, a notice to appear. That's a notice to appear in immigration court. These individuals have to go through immigration proceedings. And in essence, they have to defend themselves, tell the court that they have a right to stay here. A lot of them, in many cases, do seek asylum. Now, where where are these individuals going? According to this analysis, they're going to all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Some of the states uh, that are at the top of the list are California, Florida, New York, and Texas. Now, I could talk about this all day, Poppy, but I want to leave you with this because this group um, usually estimates the number, the, the amount of waiting time mm -hmm. for these cases. And now they're not even estimating this waiting time because wow. they say that a lot of these cases don't have hearing dates. What I can tell you from talking to a federal law enforcement source in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas is this individual has witnessed migrants getting some of these NTAs right now. And this individual says that some migrants are getting uh, some dates as early as no November and as late as 2028. 20, 2028? 2028. Wow. Before you go, we talked yesterday about this new agreement the U.S. and Mexico have where Mexico is agreeing to deport people who come right up to the border in Mexico to their home cities. Has there been reaction to that on the ground? You know, immigration advocacy organizations and human rights groups have condemned this move and they, what they're calling it is they say that this is Mexico doing America's dirty work south of the border. Here is what one organization said, quote, for years, the United States government has spent billions of dollars forcing Mexico to do its dirty work in preventing asylum seekers who are fleeing for their lives from ever stepping on U.S. soil. What these organizations are saying that U.S. law allows migrants to go to a port of entry and seek asylum. Well, right now, that's not happening. And that's mm -hmm. one of the issues that they have. Now, Poppy, what we're also learning is what the U.S. is doing as part of this agreement. I know you and I talked about this yesterday. We, were, we knew a lot about what Mexico was doing. But what was the U.S. doing? Right. From talking to a senior uh, CBP official, this individual says that one of the things that they're doing is mirror patrols. And what this means is that Mexican law enforcement and U.S. law enforcement are 
are going to have are patrolling the border at the same time. So whenever an individual is apprehended, if they're apprehended by U.S. Uh, immigration authorities, U.S. law applies, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if they're um, apprehended by Mexico, as we talked about yesterday, Mexico has pledged that they're going to return these individuals to their home countries. Yeah, helpful additional Bobby. information. Rosa, thank you for reporting for us live from Houston this morning. The mayor of El Paso, Oscar Lesser, will be with us in just under two hours' time in the 8 a.m. Eastern hour. We'll talk about all of that ahead. Phil. Well, this morning, residents of Lahaina, Hawaii, are returning to the burn zone for the first time since the catastrophic August wildfires that devastated parts of the island of Maui. After more than six weeks of waiting, families are being allowed back in. They're having to wear head-to-toe protective gear to see the ashy remnants of their homes and lives for the first time. It's a difficult of course, emotional process for many. We had a home with a yard and a neighborhood, and it's not possible. You know, it's going to break our family apart. I just can't believe it's gone. It's heartbreaking, you know. All our memories were here. Now, county officials say that gear is to help protect people from the toxic dust and soot. Poppy? New developments following that fentanyl death of a one-year-old at a Bronx daycare. Prosecutors have released these images of a suspect who left the building before emergency responders even arrived. We have the latest on that investigation ahead. And Senator Bob Menendez defiant after being indicted on federal bribery charges. We're going to speak to a former New Jersey Democratic congressman who is calling for his resignation. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, new this morning, these images just released following the fentanyl death of a one-year-old child at a Bronx daycare center. They appear to show a suspect leaving before emergency responders arrived. You can see him right there. Authorities say he entered empty-handed from where he and his wife live next door. And two minutes later, he hurried out the back door and through the bushes with shopping bags. You can see that in both pictures that they believe contain fentanyl. His wife owns the daycare and is facing federal and state charges. Well, there are growing calls this morning for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he was indicted on federal bribery charges. Three Democratic senators, Peter Welch, Sherrod Brown and John Fetterman, joined that growing list of Democrats calling for him to step down. That now includes former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Because of the challenges that we face, because the skepticism that exists in our country about governance, about this 
Republican Party that doesn't believe in governance, doesn't believe in science, so wants to take down everything in order to give tax breaks to the wealthiest. We've got to stay focused on that. And for that reason, it'd probably be a good idea if he did resign. Menendez is accused of passing non-public information along to Egyptian officials, ghostwriting a letter to the Senate on behalf of Egypt and leaning on government officials to help a business associate. Prosecutors say he used his influence to benefit Egypt in exchange for cash, gold bars, home mortgage payments, and other compensation. Menendez is denying any wrongdoing, saying the tens of thousands of dollars in cash that turned up in a search of his home is simply the result of old habits. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. Joining us now is former Congressman Tom Malinowski, a Democrat from New Jersey. He served on the House Foreign Affairs Committee before leaving Congress and is now calling on Senator Menendez to resign. Congressman, I appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with, you know, we've seen, unlike the last indictment of Senator Menendez, a number of New Jersey Democrats have come out uh, and called for his resignation. It's been much more forceful. What we haven't seen is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer or New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker uh, echo those calls. Uh, do you think that that is a mistake or a problem at this point? Well, we're, we're pretty united in New Jersey in calling on the senator to resign, re regretfully, obviously. This is a very sad story. Uh, and, and the reason is I, I just don't, I don't think we can be hypocrites. We can't ask the American people to be troubled by Donald Trump's indictments and then turn around and ask them to not be troubled by these very serious allegations against Senator Menendez. Um, I, look, I think some people have, um, in, the, in the last few days, have said this publicly. I imagine that there are others who may be having conversations with Senator Menendez privately. Um, the goal, I think, is the same. That we, we need to put this behind us and move forward. The New York Times editorial board disagrees with you um, and points out that the senator is innocent until proven guilty and questions why Democrats are, quote, so willing to run him out of office before the trial. They also write he, being Menendez, shouldn't have to resign to make life easier for Democrats. He deserves to be judged by a jury or the voters. What do you say to that? Well, he will have his day in court. He is absolutely entitled to the presumption of innocence as a criminal, as a legal matter in court. But for goodness sakes, we have higher standards for public officials. And, and I think the problem for Senator Menendez is that the allegations, the very well-documented allegations in this indictment, are, are, they're not only reprehensible, they're comprehensible. Most voters are, are going to understand that having gold bars and hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash in, in your house, the, the text messages with Egyptian intelligence, mm -hmm. the, the turning over of of information about our foreign service employees, Egyptian nationals in Egypt, to the Egyptian intelligence agency when we know that information is going to be used to pressure those people, to threaten those people. It's, it's just not something that, that any of us in New Jersey um, feel is acceptable for a, an elected official representing us. Do you think politically, if Menendez stays in the race, runs for reelection, he endangers the Democratic hold on that seat in a blue state? I, I don't think he can win the nomination. I don't think he can win the Democratic nomination. And, and 
look, I, th- this is a human drama. I think he's in mm-hmm. shock right now. He may also feel that he needs to stay in the seat a bit longer to raise money for his legal defense fund. Mm. But I, I think that I, I don't think he will be our senator come um, 2025. And so the question is how we get there. And, and it's important that Democrats be united about this. Are you going to get in the race? I haven't made any decisions yet. We, we have a strong uh, candidate already announced in the race, Congressman Andy Kim. Uh, I think our focus right now is um, calling uh, Senator Menendez mm-hmm. to do the right thing and then finding a way to unify our party around an alternative. Your tweet was notable, um, not directly about Menendez, but about something you tried to do, Congressman, and that is to put provisions that took on Egypt in several House-passed defense bills that were stripped from the legislation. To be clear, you don't know why they were stripped or who supported that. But you did tweet, quote, the idea that the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee may then have been in a corrupt relationship with Egypt is horrifying. We reached out yesterday to Menendez's office for any response to that. They didn't get back to us. Do you believe that is a matter Congress should investigate further? I think we need to, I think Congress needs to look at how Egypt, how this brutal corrupt dictatorship operates in the United States, how it's trying to corrupt our political system. Um, and I've, I've urged my, uh, my former colleagues in, in the House and Senate uh, for the moment to freeze aid to Egypt until we figure out exactly what was going on here. I don't think we get much from our relationship with this dictatorship, I think it diminishes the United States to say that we need brutal dictators like the leader of Egypt. And I hope this is an opportunity to step back and look at that relationship. All right. Former State Department official, former Congressman Tom Malinowski, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So new overnight, the lineup for the second Republican presidential debate has been announced. We'll tell you who qualified and who didn't this time around. Plus, new allegations that former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows burned documents in the White House, so much so that his wife complained about the dry cleaning bill. Those details ahead. Stay with us. New overnight, the Republican National Committee announcing the lineup for the debate tomorrow night in California. Seven candidates qualified, one fewer than last time. On the stage, you will see Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Governor Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Senator Tim Scott, and Governor Doug Burgum. Asa Hutchinson, who appeared in the first debate, did not meet all of the RNC's criteria this time. Former President Trump won't be there. He will instead travel to Detroit to deliver a speech and talk to union workers. CNN National Politics reporter Eva McKen following all of it. He will be all across the country except on the debate stage in California. Yeah, good morning to you, Poppy and Phil. It's because he's already positioning himself as a general election candidate by skipping California, going to Detroit. He's essentially telling voters his only focus is President Biden. But there's still a recognition he has to compete in the early states. He's far out ahead in every poll, but his margin not as wide in state-level polls. The electorates are small in these states, like New Hampshire and Iowa. We know that those voters appreciate appreciate an aggressive ground game and hearing from these candidates over and over again that they really want the job. So after that Detroit speech Wednesday, he'll be in Iowa over the weekend and he made a stop in South Carolina just yesterday. Eva, I do have a question. You know, the former president was in South Carolina. He made a stop at a gun store yesterday. His spokesman tweeted out that he purchased a gun, which would be problematic given he's been indicted uh, multiple 
in the form of 90-plus felony charges. What actually happened here? Yeah, so this was a, a bit of a mess, Phil, and got a lot of attention, uh, as I, many suspected would. The spokesperson tweeted out this video showing Trump at a gum shop. I think we can see the video here in South Carolina declaring he bought a Glock pistol. Um, it, it turns out he actually did not. He's, as you mentioned, under indictment, facing criminal charges. The spokesperson deleted that post, clarified he did not purchase or take possession of the firearm. He only indicated he wanted one. Federal law, of course, prohibits the sale of guns to people under felony indictment. So Trump uh, did not walk away from the gun store uh, with a gun after all, Phil. Thank you for clearing that up. Got a lot of attention for sure yesterday. Eva, thanks. Now, it's worth noting, Trump, while preparing for his remarks tomorrow in Michigan, has also squeezed in plenty of time this week to lash out against Democrats, the media, and some of his own political appointees. In a series of posts, these are only some of them, I want to make that very clear, Trump cried treason, called for a government shutdown, and even suggested his former Joint Chiefs of Staff chair should be executed. His attack on outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs Mark Milley comes days after a new report of Milley's distrust of Trump's leadership. He said Milley's dealings with China at the end of Trump's presidency, which were allowed by his administration, should be, quote, punishable by death. He also suggested NBC's parent company, Comcast, should be investigated for treason for their political coverage. He called on Republicans to push back on Democratic Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's automatic voter registration policy, and in the same post referred to his former U.N. ambassador and current campaign rival Nikki Haley as bird brain. He called on Republicans to shut down the government if they don't get everything they want in these negotiations. And he went after President Biden ahead of his trip to Michigan, accusing him of killing the UAW and calling on the union to endorse him. So he did a lot. With us to discuss, Jessica Washington, senior reporter at The Root, Michelle Price, Associated Press National Political Reporter, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst and anchor. Morning, everyone. Morning. John. I'm delighted uh, you just did that run through of Donald Trump because there's a tendency right now to uh, ignore to the extent of normalizing his most outrageous claims, particularly calling for the execution of his former Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. That's something that is so across anything resembling a moral line in politics. And the fact that it was initially greeted with silence indicates the degree to which we're getting numb to his outbursts and his grievances. And the real test for me in the next coming debate is whether any Republican has the stones to call that out in particular. Other than Chris Christie. Other than Chris Christie, right, who, who absolutely will. Because, look, if that's not unacceptable, what is? If you're a Republican, you allegedly stand for law and order and strong national security, the former president, the frontrunner, is calling for the execution of a former general? Can't call that out? You're not qualified to be president. By the way, in the same week that Millie ends 40-plus years of service right. to this country. Yes. You know? Michelle, I think the question I have, like one, all right, maybe your excuse is you don't, you're not on Truth Social. Not a lot of people are, so maybe you missed all of them. That would be fair. Um, I don't have an account yet. John helps me out on that. <laughs> but, but I think to John's point, it, it's the calibration in terms of response, not just for Republican candidates, but writ large. As you go into an election where the front-runner in the Republican Party literally tried to overturn uh, the election in 2020, and people seem to be able to brush by that, and most Republican primary candidates and challengers are not challenging him on that. And you run through that list of things that are just positively bonkers, mm -hmm. and everybody just kind of wanders by. Why? 
I mean, that has been the question since Donald Trump came down the escalator. And bonkers, I mean, among the other things, he claimed he could design a better fighter jet than the military. You know, that, that list ranged from, uh, you know, violent to just bizarre. Um, but, you know, you're right. We are not seeing anybody in that field besides Chris Christie challenge him on these things. And that, that seems to be the question is they're all trying to posit themselves as a viable alternative. Are they actually running against him? Or are they just running in the background? Tomorrow, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, I do think it, I mean, they don't want to alienate the space. They're terrified of that. I think we in the media also have a complicated push and pull because I think there was a lot of fear that we gave Trump too much airtime, that we spent too much time talking about him. And so I think there's also that fear in the media. And then also the candidates might have some of those same concerns. And so now we're saying, okay, we have to address these awful, terrible things that he said, but also how do we not then just constantly get his message in front of people who maybe aren't on true social? And so I think that could feel complicated, even though I think we do have to be calling these things out directly. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson, who was such a key witness, star witness in the January 6th hearings, has this new book out. Jake Tapper talked to her. We're going to see that a little bit later in, in the program. Um, but one thing we've learned from her book is that she reports that President Trump told his then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, quote, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. The, the Meadows camp is pushing back hard on just the whole book. Mm. But that is significant, John. To what end? It's hugely significant because it indicates that in real time, Donald Trump knew he was lost and was perpetrating a lie on the American people and his supporters that led to an attack on our capital. It goes to state of mind. So that testimony is, is incredibly significant. Do you think, though, that, I mean, again, we, we talk about the, the truths, tw tweets, whatever we call them. Um, this is another example. You know, the, la the timeline that Cassie Hutchinson laid out both in her testimony of the January 6th committee, but also in this book here. I uh, can't wait to see Jake's interview with her yeah. uh, later today on this. It, it underscores the dynamic of what this administration actually was at the end. And I, I just, does it puncture any of the kind of narrative or breakthrough where <clears throat> Trump stands? Yeah, I think it's if true is damning because his whole point, his whole legal argument is I believed that I won the election. And so I was speaking out. I was saying the truth as I understood it. And so then to have someone say, OK, actually, he knew that he had lost this election and he continued to perpetuate a lie that makes his whole legal argument fall apart. And this whole idea that there was this, you know, plan and his he was getting advice and, you know, from his counsel, that all completely falls apart if this is true. Tomorrow night, what, I mean, Chris Christie has seen some improvement in polling. There's this sort of four-way tie under Trump in the state of New Hampshire. Talk to us about what tomorrow night needs to look like for an actual breakout mm. for one of these folks. Nikki Haley got the big bounce after the last one. What about tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, she'll be looking to recreate that tomorrow night. Sure. Um, Tim Scott, the pressure's on, because I think a lot of people thought in that first debate it would be a Tim Scott moment, and it he wasn't. was so quiet yeah. that, um, I mean, I can't remember a Tim Scott line from the first debate. Um, you know, Doug Burgum will be there. I don't know that we're expecting necessarily Doug Burgum breakout. Vivek Ramaswamy was very visible in the, in the first debate and is expected to be just as, as dominant. But Ron DeSantis, the pressure is really on him because, you know, he, was, he, did, he did fine in the first debate, but he was just, he was kind of on stage, didn't have any big breakout moment. Uh, his campaign said that that was kind of just what they needed him to hold, hold his ground. But he... He, he needs to have a splash. Or yeah, but he didn't of, hold ground in key states when you look at the polling and right. how far he's fallen. To, to a shocking extent. I mean, yes. DeSantis is deflating. Mm -hmm. in, all our, in our polls, NBC polls, you see his numbers, particularly among moderates, are being cut, you know, by three quarters. 
And, and that's not sustainable. So he's got to have a breakout debate. I think Haley's opportunity is to really solidify her status as the most electable alternative to Donald Trump. Our, you know, CNN's poll showing that she's the only one in the pack who decisively beats Joe Biden. Um, and that's what donors will be looking for. Can she really make herself the, the case that she's the alternative? And if DeSantis doesn't turn it around and really claim poll position, I think he might be toast. The pitch that I've heard donors have been making to uh, campaigns have been making to donors over the course of the last couple of weeks is don't worry about the first debate. This is the debate that's the inflection point. Mm -hmm. It comes in the wake of maybe some mm -hmm. softness in Iowa for Trump, some concern there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the abortion comments as well. Not that policy is the center point of his campaign or or the Republican primary to continue our 700 part uh, debate between you and me on whether or not this primary is already over. <laughs> what has to happen to make the, to to continue to for you to perpetuate this idea that Donald people Trump start will not voting, be the Republican Phil. nominee? That, that be, my criteria for the people start voting, um, and and obviously that I think this is going to be a long fight. Guys. Yeah, that, look, look, until so, people weeks, vote in Iowa, weeks, <laughs> weeks me and Phil and I just wrestling <laughs> in the morning over this stuff. Look, it, 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 you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. These are not states that always are, are, are typical in their outcomes. And, and, you know, Chris Christie's betting it all on New Hampshire. Iowa is, is you know, its own peculiar uh, and, and wonderful uh, slap snapshot of the American people. But there's a real move on the grass tops in Iowa to look for an alternative to Donald Trump. The question is who folks coalesce around as the alternative. And that's why whoever is seen as the most electable alternative could really reshape the race. If Trump loses ground in some of those first couple of primaries, things could fall apart quickly. The problem is people have been cowed into a sense of inevitability out of fear of the base that's causing people to stay on the sidelines. And that's why I think I disagree with you. That I think treating this as inevitable perpetuates that cycle in psychology. You guys haven't even told us what the bet is over. Like, who gets oh, what? Oh, great question. <laughs> that's for the next one. Oh, we'll Price, we're, the big Adams. reveal <laughs> next Jessica time. Jessica Washington, yeah. thank you Thanks, very guys. much. Appreciate it. Well, the Supreme Court is back on the bench today for the start of a new term. The justices face historically low approval ratings over a flurry of ethics issues. We're going to dig in. Coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. So today, the Supreme Court returns for its first private meeting of the justices for the new term. It comes after multiple controversies and huge ethics questions, most notably the revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas accepting and failing to disclose lavish gifts and vacations from a wealthy Republican donor. Approval ratings for the court have now reached record lows. A recent Gallup poll shows, look at that, just 40 percent of Americans approve of the job being done by the highest court in the land. With us now, CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVoke. Ariane, good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Some of these justices really want uh, more ethics constraints, more rules, more transparency. Is that going to happen this term? 
what's interesting, as you said, this is the first time they're meeting behind closed doors since the summer recess. And there had just been this array of stories over the past months, really drawing attention to the fact that there is no code of conduct, no ethics rules that apply directly to the justices themselves, nothing that's binding. And the court over the summer in various appearances in the spring and summer, they have talked about it a little bit. Uh, we heard Chief Justice John Roberts last spring, and he said he wanted to assure the public uh, that they're taking this seriously. We heard from Justice Brett Kavanaugh over the summer, who said he hoped the court would take concrete measures, whatever that is. But Justice Elena Kagan, the liberal poppy on the court, she went further than anybody else uh, last week. Mm -hmm. And she said, look, maybe we can adapt the code of conduct that is in effect for lower court justices for the Supreme Court. Take a listen to what she had to say. I think it would be a good thing for the court to do that. There are complicated issues here. Uh, there are, you know, totally good faith um, disagreements or concerns, if you will. Uh, there are some things to be worked out. You know, I hope we can get them worked out. And of course, she is saying all of this as the new term officially begins next week. There is a really important case that's going to be heard this term, and it's about something called Chevron deference, which I will not uh, bore the American people with, but it's incredibly significant <laughs> in terms of the agency of, you know, federal agencies, for example. There is an issue, a question now because of this ProPublica reporting that Justice Thomas attended a Koch Brothers event, Koch Network donor event, and the Kochs are part of sort of the legal backing of this case. Is that going to complicate things? Well, right. This is one of the biggest cases of the term. There has been this long conservative um, movement or effort to scale back on the power of federal uh, agencies that would affect small businesses, climate, public health. And now, finally, they had this big case, as you said, before the court, asking the justices once again to scale back on precedent, overturn precedent. And now, because of that uh, news reporting with the Koch Network— Democrats are saying to Thomas, look, you need to recuse from this case. So once again, these ethics controversies are really overshadowing the work of the court, Poppy. Yeah, and he would be obviously a critical vote on that case. Thank yeah. you, Ariane, yeah. very much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. President Biden is heading to Michigan today as the auto strike enters day 12. CNN is live at the picket line. Also, Ukraine claiming it killed the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. If true, it would be a big, bro big blow to the Russian Navy. More on that ahead. Kevin McCarthy is plotting his next move, and his job is potentially on the line. Kevin McCarthy does not have the vote. If there ends up being a shutdown, Republicans would largely be to blame. Sit down with Hakeem, with Jeffries, and negotiate a way forward. Today, President Biden set to join auto workers on the picket line against the big three automakers. This is what the president wanted to do, to stand, to stand with auto workers. We invite you to join us in our fight. The surge at the border, shelters fearing they may soon be overwhelmed by migrants. More than 100,000 than what we saw crossing all of last year. We leave them on the street, but we provide shelter. Leaving them on the street is not an option for us. 
a defiant Senator Bob Menendez, flatly denying he did anything wrong. Not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. If you want to claim selective prosecution, you got to prove that. If you're indicted, you should resign. It won't help us to have him hanging around. Good morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us here on CNN this morning. A lot to get to. Did they figure out the government sitch yet? I love your optimism. It doesn't track with any reality of the last decade. But you know what? You, you got to hold on to it with four days, 16 hours and 58 minutes so the pres- until the government shuts down. Maybe the president's had it. He's leaving Washington. He's going to Detroit to deal with another Pretty issue significant there. issue. Yeah. Uh, he will be, we're talking about President Biden, joining auto workers right on the picket line in Michigan for their strike against the big three. This is the first time a sitting U.S. president has ever done that. And it comes just one day before Donald Trump will also visit Detroit and also speak with union members there. Now, these back-to-back visits to a crucial battleground state could be our clearest preview yet of a potential Biden-Trump rematch in 2024. They are, of course, fighting over union voters, Biden wanting that union endorsement. Notably, a source tells CNN the United Auto Workers union president will be joining Biden on the picket line today, but the union is not involved with Trump's visit. CNN Business and Politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkiewicz is live outside the Stellantis plant in Warren, Michigan. Uh, This is a huge next 48 hours, both politically, I think optically. What's actually happening with the negotiations as all this comes together, Vanessa? Yeah, it's going to be a historic day. You have President Biden in just a moment, a matter of hours, coming to Wayne County, Michigan, to take to the picket line. The first time we've seen a sitting president do that in what has already been a historic strike against the big three automakers by the union. Today, I'm in front of the Stellantis facility in Warren, Michigan. This is one of the 38 facilities that were authorized to strike just on Friday. So these folks have been on the picket line for just a few days now. I want to bring in James Snow to the conversation. He has been with the company for for about 25 years. Your thoughts on President Biden coming to town today, taking to the picket line? I think it's good to have any exposure shined on what we're fighting for. Um, I don't think it's the most important thing to be talking about right now. Uh, I think we have other more important things that the reason why we're out here, the, the strike that we're really fighting for. Um, like you said, I have 25 years. So we're not really out here for me or all of my other guys out here with this, about the same amount of time, if not more. We're out here for the younger guys who are just getting hired. They've been with the company four to five, six years as temporary employees working 60, 70 hours a day. They only get paid about $15 an hour. They are not eligible for vacation days. They are not eligible for the profit sharing the company likes to keep talking about. They have no dental. They have no vision. Um, and the most important thing, they have no clear path to full-time employment. And that needs to stop. You've heard that Ford has made some progress at the table with the UAW. Stellantis, we haven't heard the same level of negotiating with the union. You are with Stellantis. You work with for Stellantis. Your concerns about that? Um, I think it will be out here a while. Uh, I, the company is definitely not trying to do what's right and return the concessions that in, we gave up in good faith. We opened a contract back in 2008 or nine, agreed to the temporary concessions, and they do not want to return those to us. I guess they have a funny way of defining temporary. 
So. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you for your time this morning. So listen, negotiations are ongoing constantly. We know that Ford has put an offer on the table that the union is happier about rather than what they have seen from Stellantis and General Motors. Today, President Biden coming to town. Tomorrow, President Trump will be here in the Detroit area holding his own event. But until then, these men and women will be on the picket lines 24-7. Vanessa, that was so helpful to hear directly from him what they're fighting for, for other workers, not necessarily ones like him who've been there a long time. Thank you for being on the ground. Phil. You know, Poppy, Vanessa does a great job, particularly with that interview, of laying out kind of the stakes for the workers here. This is a labor dispute and it is a significant one with broad macroeconomic repercussions, obviously repercussions for the labor union and the auto, uh, the big three automakers as well. But the politics is something you simply can't avoid. And that's going to become very acute over the course of the next 48 hours. And here's why. President Biden, of course, won in 2020 in large part because he rebuilt the blue wall. We're talking about Pennsylvania. We're talking about Michigan. We're talking about Wisconsin. Why does that matter in this case in particular? Well, I'll tell you. I think the important thing to note is when you actually move into Michigan here, Biden won winning this state by 154,000 votes. That's obviously a very big deal, right? Well, something to keep in mind is track back to 2016. And we'll explain to you why this all matters and why these two visits over the course of the next two days are so significant. Look at this blue wall here. Pennsylvania is red. Michigan is red. Wisconsin is red. In these three states, in particular, the union vote is larger of a share than it is in most states throughout the country. Those were the voters, particularly white working class voters, particularly those without a college degree, that shifted heavily towards Trump in 2016, Biden working very hard to pull them back in 2020. So let's take a look at Michigan. Look at how close this race was. It was a stunning, stunning result for Hillary Clinton and her campaign, Trump winning the state by 10,704 votes. So let's actually pull up the exit polls on what the union vote was in 2016. Union households, Clinton had 51%. Trump had 42%. That's pretty significant, right? A nine-point victory in union households for Hillary Clinton? No, it wasn't. It was a significant drop-off from where President Obama had been in 2012. It was a focus that the Biden campaign had trying to rebuild that blue wall in 2020. So what happened in 2020? Well, let's pull back out and go into 2020 and pull that back up. Biden winning Michigan by 154,000 votes, a much larger margin of victory than Trump had in 2016. Where did the union vote land? Well, Biden enlarging it significantly, 62% to 37%. This right here, this is critical in a state where one in four households for voters are likely aligned with unions. That is why Biden is there. He's aligned with the UAW leadership. He wants that UAW endorsement. Sean Fain, the UAW president, will be with Biden on the picket line. Doesn't have the endorsement yet. But that is why this is such a political battle, so much as it is a policy or a labor battle. Bobby? Fascinating. Thank you, Phil. Let's bring in Deputy Chief of Staff, former Deputy Chief of Staff for former Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Maura Gillespie is with us, former Democratic Congressman Max Rose and Bloomberg Senior Washington Correspondent Talia Mosin. Guys, thank you for being at the table. Congressman, I want to start with you. Democrat, but you represented a very purple part of New York. So Biden is going to a battleground state. Then Trump follows him. You think that Biden needs to be careful and, in your words, wake up the campaign on this. Why? Well, absolutely. Look, look at what happened, OK? Donald Trump initially ate his lunch. Right. When he announced that he was going to this site that is traditionally the Democratic base. Stronghold. 
Now, what, what's interesting, though, is that what everyone thought, the press and myself included, was that what Biden was going to do was stay away from Michigan as a consequence of that, because you don't want to look like you're going there just in response to Trump being there. But instead, the administration and his campaign has decided to do something that no president, no sitting president has ever done, and in the process has completely shifted the narrative away from Donald Trump to this truly unprecedented act in support and in solidarity of working people and unions. And in that sense, it's a political win. But, you know, you mentioned that this is a preview of the general election. This is the initiation of the general election. Do you think, Maura, it's risky? Because on the one hand, he has to go there as President Trump. The other hand, he has to go there as candidate Trump. And you've got to believe he's going to be asked specifics like, okay, so you support our four-day work week, you support X, Y, and Z. Is he going to be able to directly answer those questions? What does he need to actually bring as president? So President Trump or President Biden? Biden. Biden. Biden goes there as candidate, right? And president. So that's the issue here is that going as a candidate makes sense, right? You want to show your support for the unions because largely they have been, uh, he is the most pro-union president, as he has said countless times. But going as president, you have to show up with something. You can't just go there and be happy to throw your support and then do nothing else. They are going to want to know what you are going to do tangibly as president to help them. Uh, so it, I think it is an issue for the president to go there and not have anything but walking with them and being candidate Joe as opposed to President Joe Biden. Um, but I would also say that the bigger issue is that we're kind of dancing around it and they're ignoring the fact that policies that the president has put forward are going to hurt the unions and they're going to hurt these labor, you know, auto workers. Uh, because introducing EV, uh, while it's great and is going to be the future, it does impact them at the end of the day. So I think, you know, ignoring that issue, uh, Donald Trump's going to hit on that. Donald Trump is going to point out these issues that Biden's going to have with the auto workers, and he's going to compel to them on an emotional level and try to relate to them, despite the obviously contradictory aspect of the fact that the former president has his own issues as a businessman and, and with workers and not paying them or not paying them enough. Uh, so it, it'll be an interesting uh, sort of next few days here. Well, it's fascinating, right? Because if you look at what Trump did with the National Labor Relations Board, if you look at what Trump promised with Lordstown, where I'm from in Ohio, that never actually came to pass. If you want to have a policy debate, I'm pretty sure the Biden folks would take that. I think the question, though, and I think you're getting at this, is the ability to have that kind of political knockdown, drag out fight. When you're technically the president, there's a reason presidents don't go to picket lines, right? They're trying. They're not part of this negotiation. They're not a party. They try and kind of stay in the background and hope to facilitate. You've covered this team's economic policy and efforts closer than anybody. How do they operate in this space, given the politics? To me, it's a sign of desperation. If the president is making this huge move to show up and outshine the last president, who was a candidate, who was his big opponent, it is showing how hard he's fighting because what Donald Trump is doing is trying to recreate that 2016-like attraction, that pull to blue-collar workers that got him to the White House. And Biden grabbed those votes in 2020, and they're uncertain now about him. That constituency is not sure because he's backed electric vehicle production Trump is talking about how that's going to wipe out your jobs because they need less union workers to produce those kinds of cars. They're shipping those jobs to China. That's exactly how he won in 2016. He's recreating that. And so Biden is rushing in to do the counter narrative, but he's showing up a little bit empty handed when it comes to policy fixes on making sure union jobs are protected. I mean, what power you you make this good point that the president needs to tell these workers he won't allow the EV transition that this administration backs so fervently to chip away at good-paying jobs. 
But he doesn't really actually have any power to make those promises, does he? He has signaling power to show up and to make it clear to the big automakers that I'm the president and I support this. Uh, unless he's willing to go back on those promises on EV production, which he's not, that's going to upset a lot of people in the climate change sector, he can't really do anything here. Back to that point, I mean, the balance here, right? Biden's tried every single time he talks about this to say, when I talk about climate, I'm talking about jobs. I'm talking about union jobs. And, and that's his message. It doesn't necessarily track particularly uh, with auto workers. Um, how does he navigate this? Because what Moore's pointing out is 100% true. And that's why the UAW is in a different spot than other labor organizations and unions here. Well, there's, of course, the opposite point, right? The Biden administration successfully negotiated uh, the dock workers and the railroad workers union deliberations. They did so very quiet, quietly, diplomatically. And I don't think they got credit for it, despite the fact that those were also historic agreements. So politics is, yes, about nuance and prose, but it's also about poetry and it's also about large symbolic acts. So certainly when this negotiation does end, and I do believe that these workers have a very strong position and significant momentum, there's an argument to be made that the Biden administration will receive more credit this time and the UAW's endorsement, because although the UAW has said they will not be endorsing uh, Donald Trump, they're still very open to endorsing Joe Biden. Does that endorsement matter? It does. I mean, they've largely had this kind of stranglehold on this group of voters, this block of voters. Right. Uh, but again, Republicans are looking at Michigan, and this could be a real opportunity to make some headway there. I think Vane is more aligned with his mm. actual rank and file than UAW presidents have been in the past. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it very much. All right. This is ahead. The House back in session today. No spending deal in sight. Speaker Kevin McCarthy running out of time. We've got the latest on these negotiations. These are the days Max really misses the House. Don't you, Max? <laughs> <laughs> also, in just moments, Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny is expected to virtually attend an appeal hearing from the penal colony where he's been serving his 19-year prison sentence for charges of extremism. This coming as Ukraine claims they have killed a prominent Russian commander in their attack on Moscow's Black Sea Fleet. Our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, joins us live. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this hour, Alexei Navalny is expected to virtually attend a hearing where he'll appeal his latest sentence on extremism charges. A Russian court handed down a new 19-year punishment to Navalny last month. That's on top of an 11-and-a-half-year sentence he was already serving. In 2020, Navalny was the victim of a suspected poisoning while on a flight to Moscow. A CNN investigation with Bellingcat found, that, found evidence that before Navalny fell ill, he was being followed by agents from Russia's security service. You don't recognize them. I don't recognize any of them. Would it surprise you to learn that some of these men went on more than 30 trips with you over the course of three years? That is absolutely terrifying. I don't know if, if terrifying is a good word. That was our own Clarissa Ward interviewing Navalny, and here she is confronting one of the FSB members who was involved in Navalny's poisoning trying to get answers, and he just shuts the door. Navalny spent months recovering in Germany before he returned to Russia in early 2021, where he was immediately arrested. He is Russia's most prominent opposition leader. He says the charges against him are all politically motivated. Here with us at the table this morning, happy to have our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. Good morning. So happy to Such be with you. Such a treat to have you in person. 
So today, this hearing, why does it matter and what happens? Well, in terms of the ramifications of it, I wouldn't expect much. Uh, basically, it's an opportunity, though, for people who are close to Navalny, for people who are watching in terms of human rights abuses, what kind of condition he's in. Mm -hmm. Previously, when we have seen him by video link, he has been incredibly emaciated, um, not in a good way. He has posted on his various social media channels that he has been in solitary confinement. For the last four days, he's been held in deplorable conditions. He has all sorts of health issues. Uh, he said that he was being put on very strong antibiotics at one stage that were giving him real stomach problems. He is now being served with, you know, 19 years, various right. different charges, extremism. But I think the reality is, and I think this is something that he probably always understood, that there is no prospect for this appeal to be successful, that there is no prospect for Alexei Navalny to be a free man as long as President Vladimir Putin remains in power. And just to be clear, the charges themselves, what are they based on and are any of them valid? None of them are valid. They are a series of trumped up charges ranging from extremism to fraud. Um, you have to understand that President Vladimir Putin has effectively eviscerated now civil society inside Russia. And Alexei Navalny posed a legitimate threat not because of the number of people supporting him, but because where he was really probing the hardest was on the corruption of the Kremlin, not trying to appeal to Russians who might be interested in liberalism or want to live a more Western life. He understood that that doesn't really play with the Russian base, but corruption and the idea that people are stealing from the ordinary Russians, that the elites are stealing, mm -hmm. that is an effective tool and it made him a very dangerous man as far as Putin was concerned. You also have been on, on the front lines many times since the war, Russia's war in Ukraine began. And we got news yesterday that Zelensky says the first Abrams tanks from the U.S. have mm -hmm. come. And there's, according to the White House, many more to come. What actual difference does that make in this counteroffensive, which has been very slow? Well, I think the, the key is the number, right? We're talking about a few dozen right. Abrams tanks. 30. So they may be very helpful on the battlefield. But if you're talking about 30 tanks, it's not realistically going to make a widespread difference. My guess is that they will use them together to make a real push in one area. But the broader issue on the ground is that this counteroffensive is moving slowly. And that is what President Putin is counting on. He can keep grinding and keep the Russian people suffering for as long as he wants to. President Zelensky has to keep his allies on board. And we are heading into the season, it's called Rasputitsa. It basically means it gets very rainy, it gets very muddy, then it gets very cold, the ground freezes over, it becomes that much harder to, to push through those fortifications. And the Russians at this stage, it's important to remember, they're playing defense. They're getting a little better they're too, right? They're not playing offense and they're improving, okay? They made terrible mistakes in the beginning. They suffered humiliating defeats. They are absolutely beginning to learn from their mistakes. And so this is going to be a very tough battle for the Ukrainians going ahead. We've seen an uptick in the tempo of Ukrainian uh, efforts to hit Crimea, to hit yeah. <clears throat> specific, uh, I think, strategic uh, critical points in mm -hmm. Crimea in particular, which was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. Um, there had been reports that perhaps a, a very high-ranking official had been killed. Just in just moments ago, Russian Ministry of Defense has now put out a video appearing to show the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet suggesting he's alive despite those claims from Ukraine that he was killed. This back and forth, I guess, what do you make of it? But more broadly, this strategy that you've seen from the Ukrainians. 
What do I make of it? I make of it that we have a very tough job as journalists because this is an information war. And so yesterday you had the Ukrainians coming out saying that they had killed this commander. This would be a very big deal, the biggest really since they sunk the Moskva ship last year. 30 or more than 30 officers killed alongside. Now you have the Russians saying, well, here he is. He's still alive. How do we know what to believe? Um, but most importantly, coming to your question about the sort of tactic, this is a very effective tactic for the Ukrainians, right? It may be incredibly difficult to push through those fortifications, but to keep the pressure up in Crimea, to keep up this idea that you are safe at no place on the battlefield, whether you are a commander or whether you are a rank and file soldier, you are constantly at risk of this very specific targeting. That is a very effective tool both in terms of, you know, the impact it has on the battlefield, but also psychologically. So I think you're going to see a lot more of these almost like guerrilla-like tactics mm. going forward. We're just waiting for those images to come in so we can show our viewers that Russia is saying, here's the proof that, that the commander of the Black Sea Fleet is alive. As we wait for those, the increasing drone attacks mm. inside Russia on Moscow that President Zelensky publicly denies is, are coming from Ukraine but then also talks about the effectiveness of doing that. Should we expect those to increase? I think you should expect that to increase both on the Ukrainian side and on the Russian side. Technology has been at the forefront of this war from the get-go, right? The Ukrainians understood that this was kind of their superpower. And you have this strange juxtaposition of a war that is being played out in the trenches, reminiscent of World War I, but at the same time is implementing right. some of the most sophisticated technology that we have ever seen on the battlefield. Again, though, the Russians are starting to play catch-up. The Russians are buying lots of drones from the Iranians. They're stockpiling them. And as we head into this so-called Rasputitsa season, right, where you might see fewer or less movement on the actual physical battlefield, I think you're going to see a lot more drone attacks mm. coming from both sides in Ukraine and, and also beyond. Can I pull back for a minute? I think we get so, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, getting so caught up in the weeds on these congressional funding fights and the kind of absurdity that we do this every single year, every single fiscal year. Um, and Ukraine funding, an emergency Ukraine funding, the administration asked for an additional $24 billion is a piece of this larger battle. Um, but there has been a shift, particularly among House Republicans, but also some shift in terms of how the American people feel about the funding. Mm. When, if you're the international community, if you're the Ukrainians who you mentioned, Zelensky needs his allies desperately at this moment. Talk about what this battle on Capitol Hill means more broadly? I think this is an existential battle for the Ukrainians. They understand that if the Republicans decide to really pull back on this funding, if the American people are really starting to tire of this war, it is going to be next to impossible for Ukraine to win it. They desperately need this funding, not just in terms of the weaponry, not just in terms of defense spending. I'm talking simple things like paying government salaries Ukraine's economy is effectively being underwritten at the moment by the U.S. and by the Europeans as well. And if there's any sense that that support is starting to wane and that there's a kind of malaise kicking in, that is going to be setting off alarm bells. I think it already is setting off alarm bells in Kiev. And that is exactly, coming back to my original point, what President Vladimir Putin has been betting on from the beginning. We can keep grinding. We were born for this moment, whether it's two years, five years, or a decade. But the West does not have the same appetite for suffering. And the West, of course, 
in general, has to answer to its voters. Yeah, absolutely, Clarissa. Thank you. A treat to have you here. Thank you. We appreciate it. And just take a look at this. We just got uh, this in, I believe. Uh, this is Russia saying this is proof that the commander of their Black Sea Fleet was not killed, as Ukraine claimed yesterday, that he is alive. But as Clarissa rightly put it, it makes the job for journalists very tough with all of this information from both sides. We'll keep following that. Absolutely. Well, to get a grasp, a better grasp of the migrant crisis facing the U.S., CNN's David Culver traveled to Mexico's border with Guatemala. His report, that's coming up next. And that's Guatemala over there. And that, if you look here, are folks crossing. They're waving at us. Migrants who have made the journey from various countries. This morning, a new report says the U.S. Immigration Court has a backlog of nearly 3 million cases, even as the migrant crisis continues to escalate. Thousands more migrants arrive each day to cities like El Paso and Eagle Pass, stretching resources thin. Meantime, U.S. officials have a new agreement with Mexico to deport migrants from border cities back to their home countries. Because this unprecedented surge is also overwhelming Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. And that's where we find CNN's David Colvin. To get a better sense of the migrant crisis impacting the U.S., we wanted to come to the border. Not the border you might be thinking of. Rather, we're at Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. That's Guatemala over there. And that, if you look here, are folks crossing. They're waving at us. Migrants who have made the journey from various countries. We've met folks from Haiti, from Cuba, from Honduras. Ultimately, though, many of them tell us, if not all, they want to go north. By the way, that's the official crossing, that bridge. Not many people using that. Instead, they come to this side, the Mexico side, and this is into a city that's called Ciudad Hidalgo. And they've set up little encampments. You can see here, you've got folks with tents set up. They've got clothes hanging. They're cooking food. You see a lot of families, a lot of young children in particular. And the plan for many of them is to be here in Ciudad Hidalgo until they can find a way, usually by bus or by car, to get to Tapachula, which is the largest city in this area, in the state of Chiapas in southern Mexico. And many of them plan then to go meet with officials, and they hope to then claim asylum here in Mexico, or at the very least try to get transit documents, and that buys them time to stay in Mexico as they plan their way into the U.S. Most of them will tell you, and they've told me this directly, they want to enter the U.S. legally. But what you've noticed here, and we've seen this in the past several months here in Mexico in particular, is the influx and the surge is a real strain on the resources for Mexican cities. And you notice it, as you see, a lot of these folks are really trying to, on their own, figure out how to find food, how to find clothes, and they're filling up cities like Tapachula. 15 to 17,000 right now. That's the number of migrants alone in Tapachula. Huge numbers that plan to wait and stay. And so essentially, if you look at the U.S. border as a river and you've cut it off in one part, at least that's the intention from U.S. border officials, well, upstream, it's still flowing and it's flowing rapidly. And this is the impact. It's coming on over the banks. You've got migrants here who ultimately, yes, want to go to the U.S., but frankly, most of them don't know how or where they'll end up. It really has become a humanitarian crisis, and most everyone you speak with here acknowledges that. David Culver, CNN, Ciudad de Agro, Mexico. Again, David Culver with remarkable perspective and view of what is driving this. Yeah.
Well, Senator Bob Menendez is digging in as calls for him to resign grow louder following his indictment on bribery charges. Three senators from his own party now say he should step down. Well, some House Republicans are threatening their colleagues should they work with Democrats to keep the government running. Some senators say there should be bipartisan solutions to avoid a shutdown now and in the future. One of those senators is Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma. He's here next. There are growing calls this morning for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign. Three Democratic senators, Peter Welch, Sherrod Brown, and John Fetterman, join a long list of Democrats calling for Menendez to step down, including now former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. CNN's Lauren Fox has more. Calls for embattled Democratic Senator Bob Menendez to resign are growing as he faces down federal corruption charges again. The charges are... uh, Formidable. It'd probably be a good idea if he did resign. Three Democratic senators are now calling for his resignation, including Vermont's Peter Welsh, writing, quote, the shocking and specific allegations against Senator Menendez have wholly compromised his capacity to be that effective senator. I encourage Senator Menendez to resign. In his first on-camera statement since the charges were filed Friday, Menendez remained defiant, vowing not to step down. I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. Federal prosecutors allege Menendez received hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in the form of cash, gold and a luxury vehicle in exchange for the senator's influence. The conspiracy counts also charge his wife and three people described as New Jersey associates and businessmen. Prosecutors say some of that evidence included DNA and fingerprints of one of the business contacts Menendez allegedly accepted bribes from. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. One Democratic congressman says this explanation is not good enough. He didn't disclose having that cash. All senators have to disclose their income. And of course, he didn't address the gold bars. He didn't address the Mercedes. He only addressed the cash. So, no, I don't think that's a very good explanation. Senator Menendez is due in court on Wednesday, but when he returns to the Capitol, we expect that he will no longer wield the powerful gavel of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Instead, he will temporarily step aside. Senator Ben Cardin, another Democrat on that committee, will rise to become the top Democrat in his absence. Menendez will continue serving on the committee, just not in that top slot. Phil, Poppy. All right, Lauren Fox, keep us posted. Thank you. All right, so this just into CNN, a warning from the White House about a shutdown and potential damage to the United States as the White House puts the blame squarely on House Republicans. According to a new statement from the White House, quote, a government shutdown would have damaging impacts across the country, including undermining our national security and forcing service members across the country and around the world to work without pay. So at the center of these negotiations is new military assistance, funding for Ukraine, according to The Times, 
Also, in the Senate, a bipartisan idea gaining traction to take the threat of a government shutdown off the table, not just now, but for good. Senators and House members circulating a letter pushing legislation that would automatically fund the government past spending deadlines. That is addressed to top party leaders, and here's part of it, quote, it is a simple bill that offers an eminently reasonable, eminently, I should say, reasonable solution to one form of recurring congressional gridlock. Well, our next guest co-sponsored that bipartisan bill, has been pushing it for five years, Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. Boy, is it relevant now, uh, Senator. Thank you very much for joining us. The question is, would leaders give up the leverage that they get from spending deadlines and shutdowns to forever end the possibility of a shutdown? We do need to take the shutdown issue off the table entirely. Uh, at the end of the day, this is not good for the United States of America as a world leader. It doesn't typically solve the problem at any point. In fact, I don't know of a shutdown that solved the issue on it. We do need to have hard, grown-up conversations about debt and deficit. Mm -hmm. But during a shutdown is the wrong time to do it. And quite frankly, the way the bill is shaped, the leaders still have leverage. Uh, the way that we shape the bill, this is Senator Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. She and I wrote this together five years ago that members of Congress and our staff, we stay in session seven days a week, can only work on appropriation bills. It forces Congress to be able to do its job, but it holds federal workers and their families and the American people harmless in the process while we're still trying to while we work through the issues that we've got to get done. Senator Schumer, Schumer's and McConnell are working towards a short-term agreement in the Senate to basically force this on the House if they can't figure it out. And according to Politico, it'd be about four to six weeks of funding with minimal Ukraine funding. Would you get behind that? Would you support it? Yeah, as with everything, we got to be able to see the details on it. We do need to be able to keep the government open and operating while we get a chance to be able to talk through the hard issues that we've got to be able to resolve. So we'll see what they actually come together. They're going to file that, we understand, later on today, and all of us will get a chance to be able to read it. But on its face, it sounds reasonable? On its face, it's reasonable. Well, we do have to be able to keep basic government operations going. When it comes to Ukraine funding, I thought that this was notable from John Kirby at the White House. Here's what he said. Listen. Without the supplemental request that we asked for, it will absolutely have an effect on our ability to support Ukraine well into the fall and into the winter months. I wonder if you have a message to some of your fellow Republicans who not only are pushing to exclude more Ukraine funding from a continuing resolution, but from the budget entirely. Yeah, so a lot of folks are saying, hey, we've got to take care of our problems here in America, so we can't take care of Ukraine. We have to be able to do both. We are the United States of America. Now, th this is not an endless war that can just go on forever, but we cannot allow the thug Putin to be able to go next door and slaughter his neighbors. Uh, that cannot be allowed. That's why Japan and South Korea, Europe, the United States, so many others, even countries in Africa have chipped in to be able to help Ukraine. That's why there's a lot of oversight that's actually happening on those weapon systems but it is a bad thing for the world for Putin to be able to go slaughter his neighbors and the world just to be able to turn away from that. Uh, that will be a signal to Iran. That will be a signal to North Korea and to China and so many others. So yes. we need to stay engaged and we need to allow uh, Ukraine to be able to win this war. Senator, you make a good point uh, that there are a number of Americans who say, what about us at home? 
And I just want to point to one thing in your state, right? Oklahoma City is home to the FAA's training academy for air traffic controllers. Critically important right. position. We remember the shutdown end of 2018 into 2019. They had to cancel contracts, cancel training for those folks. Right. Talk about what the impact would be at home in your state that would actually affect all Americans. Yeah, a lot of folks say that shutdowns are just a slowdown of government. It doesn't really affect people. It absolutely does affect us, not only on the international stage, but all the contractors are not paid. They're actually cut out and then they're not paid. So areas like you mentioned, the air traffic control training, uh, that's a lot of contractors that actually do that. They're put out, they're not paid at all. If it's there long enough, they literally have to restart the program as they did last time. That puts us behind an air traffic control where we've already got a slowdown. That's true on our southern border right now as well. The Border Patrol and CBP are dependent on contractors working with them to be able to help facilitate all the transportation, everything else that's going on. If those contractors go away, a really horrible, chaotic situation at the border gets even worse when those yeah. folks have, at that time, no pay and also no help. Right. Let's talk about the border. You've been almost a dozen times as a ranking member of the Homeland Security Subcommittee on Border Management. There was a congressional report in 2019, and it looked at what that shutdown meant for the border. And yes, although Border Patrol agents continued to work, they didn't get paid. There was a delay in maintenance, a delay in repairs. And it, quote, according to this congressional report, had a serious impact on how law enforcement officers operate and their safety, including those responsible for border security. Do you have a message for Republican hardliners that care a lot about the border? A lot of people do but who, who are standing against a deal here, given what this shows us happened last time at the border. Yeah, my biggest message is let's have the argument about debt and deficit. They're not wrong on those issues, but to be able to say to, the, to a chaotic border, it's gonna get even worse while we're trying to be able to negotiate uh, what's happening on debt and deficit is the wrong method to be able to do it. Not only those members of law enforcement down there now suddenly are not paid, it's already incredibly difficult on them day to day and what they're actually facing. But then also to have no pay during that time period is really difficult and to lose access to all those contractors. We've got to, as Congress, focus on redefining and clarifying what the word asylum means so we don't have 10,000 people a day crossing our border being waved into, that we have no background checks, no information on, no details. We can't have that as a country. That's a national security problem, but we also can't make it worse in the process. And 2.6 million of those asylum claims backed up in the immigration courts right now. Before we go, obviously, you're on the right. ethics committee. Up to, up to 10 years yeah. waiting. I know. Uh, Rosa Flores was just reporting that to us this morning. It's pretty stunning. Um, Senator Bob Menendez defiant after these, this indictment on multiple bribery counts. I want you to listen to some of his response yesterday. Here it is. For 30 years... I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now this may seem old fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. He believes he will be exonerated. He believes he will stay the senior uh, senator from New Jersey. You're on the ethics committee. Will you guys investigate this? So I can't talk about anything on ethics. That has been a standard rule that all of us that are on ethics, myself and Chris Coons, that lead that committee, we never talk about anything. So let me as ask you if you think ethics. If I you would tell you, think something like this would be worthy of investigation, then. 
Uh, certainly it would be there when individuals from outside or people inside actually uh, make accusations or that they file a request to be able to inspect that the ethics committee always follows up on those things. Uh, it is a unique challenge to be able to walk through the process where we have to be able to do it in silence. Obviously, the Department of Justice, they have continued to be able to do their investigation. That investigation will move on the criminal side. It is difficult to be able to think through a member of the United States Senate that says they don't trust their own government in the operation of their government enough that they would have to be able to maintain that much cash at home. Uh, that is a challenging, obviously, issue to be able to try to explain. We in the Ethics Committee will work through it as we always do, and the Department of Justice will do their work as well. Senator James Lankford, it's nice to have you with us this morning. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Thanks. Bill. Well, the warm temperatures in the Pacific Ocean could be having a major impact on how bad this winter will be. What you can expect, that's next. And we promise no song title puns here hey. to Phil's dismay, <laughs> but new financial evidence that Swifties and football fans are all in on this rumored relationship between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, if you needed any more proof that Taylor Swift's appearance at the Chiefs game Sunday was resonating, Poppy needed more proof. She was very clear about that. People appear to be putting their money literally on the rumored couple. According to Fanatics, Travis Kelsey was in the top five of jersey sales this weekend, surging more than 400%. It was likely driven almost exclusively by Swift fans. And this is the best part of this entire story, including the future of their relationship. One surprising Swift fan weighed in yesterday. Where do you fall on that? <laughs> Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, power couple in the NFL. Travis Kelsey's had a lot of big catches in his career. <laughs> <laughs> this would be the biggest. Yeah, that was Patriots coach Bill Belichick. And he actually went to Taylor Swift's concert at Gillette Stadium earlier this year. After that performance, he called Swift tough and impressive. And I love that. That was the moment of the morning to get Bill Belichick to laugh and smile at a reporter's question. To show question. any personality. It's a big to deal. answer a reporter's question. It's a big deal. All right. We are only a few days into the fall and with winter not far behind, this year could bring drastic changes. Experts say this winter will be the first in a few years to feel the effects of El Nino because of warmer than normal ocean temperatures in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. Here to explain the phenomenon, our expert Meteorologist Derek Van Dam, does it just mean more blizzards or what? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people along the East Coast will be quite happy, actually, Poppy, because last year they were robbed of a proper winter. That's this true. This year maybe their year of retribution, right? So, yes, you can expect more winter storms along the East Coast. In fact, this is the typical weather pattern that an El Nino drives during the core of the winter months, December to February. And take note of what we call an amplified storm track. That is the southern uh, polar jet stream. And that is basically just running across the southern tier of our U.S. and making its way into the eastern seaboard as well. So uh, to conjure up my favorite HBO Max show, yes, winter is coming. So expect that. That's the trend. In fact, according to the Climate Prediction Center, they're actually calling for above normal precipitation, favoring much of the eastern seaboard during the core of the winter season. And that means that the weather patterns generally are going to favor that area for more snow. So what about temperatures? Well, climatologists look towards other winter seasons with strong El Ninos, like we're entering into, and they compare December, Januarys, and Februarys of previous years, and this is what they predict. The above average temperatures will be located across the northern tier of our country with the cooler weather kind of defined to the southern portions of the U.S. So if you're looking for snowy and cold weather, 
anticipate that along the eastern seaboard. This may be your winter. Phil, Bobby? Yay. Derek Van Dam in Game of Thrones. <laughs> it was the crossover we never was, knew we needed, but could, now have to have. I was going to make you <laughs> name that, that show. Away. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Cross this, promotion. This just into CNN. Hunter Biden now suing Rudy Giuliani. We'll explain why next. And Cassie Hutchinson releasing a book about her time as a top aide to Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Some shocking revelations in the allegations she is making. That's next. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. 8 a.m. here on the East Coast. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 26. Four days left until a possible government shutdown. Kevin McCarthy and his conference remain in a standoff this morning. McCarthy insists GOP threats to oust him from his speakership are not influencing negotiations. And just hours from now, President Biden will be in Michigan joining members of the United Auto Workers Union on the picket line. He will not be involved in the talks, but the White House says he is lending his support. Police are looking for this man in connection with the fentanyl death of a one-year-old at a Bronx daycare. Prosecutors say he was seen on video fleeing through a back alley carrying two bags. And former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson out with a new book that paints the closing days of the Trump administration as even more chaotic and more lawless than she previously disclosed. And cities across the U.S.-Mexico border scrambling, dealing with this recent influx of migrants. El Paso's mayor, Oscar Lesser, says his border city is at a breaking point, and he joined us live. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. But we do begin with this news just into CNN. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is now suing former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and others over the data obtained from his now infamous laptop. Under left of the Delaware repair shop. Let's bring in our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, with more. What what grounds is he suing him on? Well, this is about data privacy. And Hunter Biden is going to court here in federal court in California, suing not just Rudy Giuliani, but also Giuliani's companies and a lawyer that was representing Giuliani for some time, a close friend of his named Robert Costello. And what Hunter Biden is accusing Robert Costello and Rudy Giuliani of doing is essentially getting access to data that was taken from his laptop. So that laptop was the laptop that he had given over to a computer repair shop in Delaware. And at some point, Rudy Giuliani and Robert Costello got access to a drive of information that Hunter Biden says at least some of that was indeed from the laptop. He's not saying that everything was. There might have been manipulated data on there. But what they're accusing Giuliani and Robert Costello of doing here in this lawsuit is essentially unlawfully uh, invading his privacy, hacking into a computer. That's some of the language that they use in this lawsuit. Uh, And one of the things that they say is that defendant statements suggest that their unlawful hacking activities are ongoing today and that unless stopped, will continue into the future, thereby necessitating this action. So that's the reason that they're going to court on this. But it's also just one of these moments where Hunter Biden is on the offense of bringing a case against Rudy Giuliani, quite a Mm well-known figure in the world uh, of people who were talking about Hunter Biden. And at one point, a person who held up the laptop uh, or held up a drive on air and said, this is the hard drive that all of the Hunter Biden material Mm -hmm. is on. Yeah, Caitlin, to that point, there's been a lot of talk over the course of the last several months about uh, Hunter Biden's legal team being more aggressive uh, in these moments. Is this part of a counteroffensive strategy? Absolutely. Uh, And we see that because 
We see multiple lawsuits from Hunter Biden now. This is not the first time he has sued over some sort of invasion of his privacy. There's been another lawsuit uh, against a man, Garrett Ziegler, a researcher who had ties to the Republican Party, who was working uh, with a woman in Arkansas. He sued that man. He's also sued the IRS uh, because of statements uh, he believes were infringing on his tax privacy uh, related to that Republican investigation that is ongoing around him. So there's a couple different lawsuits here. Rudy Giuliani is just the latest. At the same time, he's facing his own criminal issue uh, in the state of Delaware. All right, Caitlin Pollins, keeping track of all of it somehow. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing a ticking clock, only four days left to avoid a government shutdown. McCarthy has to get Republicans to unite around a short-term spending bill to strengthen their leverage in talks with the Democratic-led Senate. But now the promises he made to GOP hardliners back in January, they're catching up with him. This as House lawmakers are returning today to vote on a series of appropriations bills. Those bills, of course, are dead on arrival in the U.S. Senate. To make matters worse, both the president and the former president are jumping into the fray. The Biden administration warning of dire consequences if the government cannot fund itself, saying the speaker has to do his job. Meanwhile, Trump is encouraging Republicans to let the government run out of money and shut down if all their demands are not met. As the pressure mounts, McCarthy faces this stark dilemma. Fellow Republican Congressman Ken Buck says he believes McCarthy can get through this. Before I let you go, do you think Speaker McCarthy will weather this? I do. And I, I mentioned before, I don't think anybody wants this job. Uh, it is a horrible, <laughs> you know, herding cats is a very difficult process. And when you've got cats with big egos in this building, uh, it is very difficult to do. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. That's an interesting take from Congressman Buck that no one else wants a job, but they don't want him to lose it. Well, no one else may want the job at this moment, Poppy, given how difficult it is. But the reality is that... McCarthy potentially still does face potentially an ouster from some of his colleagues because of the pickle that he's in when it comes to government funding. You know, one of the things to be watching right now is there's a lot of drama that's going to play out in the House this week. They are going to try to move forward with these one-year individual spending bills while leadership is simultaneously trying to rally members around a short-term spending package in order to try to get some leverage with the Senate. That is largely going to be a distraction because most of those options, all of those options, would not avoid a government shutdown at this point. Right now, the focus is in the Senate, where you have Republican and Democratic negotiators and leadership trying to find a path forward on a short-term spending package that sources are telling me and our colleague Manu Raju would likely be around 45 days long. Now, that's not a whole lot of time, but one of the reasons for that shorter timeline is potentially because they may not be able to include the full $24 billion in Ukraine funding that the White House has requested, nor will they necessarily be able to include disaster aid. Now, those conversations are fluid right now, and there's a lot of things that could change in the next several hours as they try to get members of their respective caucuses behind this short-term spending plan. But the Senate is trying to find a way forward, and they need to move quickly so that they can send it over to the House of Representatives. And then it will be up to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to decide what to do. Depending on when that bill goes over to the House 
House of Representatives. It's possible that there may not be enough time for McCarthy to have any option other than deciding whether or not to put the bill on the floor in the House. It's also possible, of course, that the House might find some way to come together, that Republicans may try to change that bill that comes from the Senate. But so many moving pieces here. And because we have such a short timeline that these leaders are trying to work within, that is the challenge. And that is why McCarthy certainly does not have any good options left on the menu right now. Poppy, Phil. But Lauren, to that point, I mean, he he does, right? There's an option that always ends these types of issues, which is a bipartisan vote with half of the Republican conference that gets whatever the Senate jams them with across the finish line. Has there been any indication whatsoever in your reporting that this is becoming a real option right now? Are we just going to play this game for another couple days? Every single day, we push House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on that exact question, Phil. Would you put the Senate pass bill on the floor of the House? And every single day, his response is, that is a hypothetical. And if we get to that point, give me a call. But obviously, that is becoming more and more of a potential reality for the Speaker. Again, it assumes that the Senate can negotiate a short-term spending package, can pass it out of their chamber in short order, and volley it over to the House of Representatives. A lot of things have to happen for that to be a choice that McCarthy has to make. But if it happens, that is obviously the easiest path forward if you forget about the fact that any one member could call to oust the speaker at any moment. And certainly working with Democrats could trigger that from some of his hardliners. Bill? Just one. Lauren Fox, thanks very much. Well, for more on the negotiations to avert a shutdown, let's bring in Republican Congressman from New York, Mark Molinaro. He helped bring some House Republicans around a plan to pass individual uh, annual spending bills, four of which should face key procedural votes today. Congressman, I appreciate your time, particularly because you've been in the room trying to navigate some kind of path forward at this point. You know, you have kind of helped spearhead the idea of moving full year bills Uh, that will start at least procedurally today. My biggest question is, is that enough to unlock enough Republican support to move a Republican stopgap bill? You know, I think, uh, you know, we've been engaged in this uh, conversation and they're deeply held beliefs, principled people from both ends of the ideological spectrum. The goal here is to show good faith, not only to each other, but to the American people that we mean business about shrinking the size, scale and scope of the federal government. And by moving those bills, which, by the way, the speaker had committed to uh, all along and we've we've seen them. Right. House Appropriations Committee is was moving those individual bills forward. But by by showing that earnest effort, getting them on the floor and debating them, amending them. Uh, we're hopeful that unlocks support for short-term funding. And, and I would say, listen, it, it's critical that the House and House Republicans present something that uh, respects taxpayers, that presents to the Senate our best offer, which is, uh, we hope, uh, to drive down federal spending, secure the border, uh, and ensure that we respect the, the people paying the bills. Yeah, I understand kind of the, the plan and the proposal, but just to clarify, at this point, you still don't have any assurances that you guys have 218 votes on a short-term bill. I don't I think that the movement will produce more time to continue moving down the, the path of uh, of adopting the appropriations bills. Uh, and so I, I'm not obviously the speaker nor in a position to say uh, there's a final agreement. What what we came together on, I think, is an earnest effort on behalf of the people we represent. Move those bills forward. Have the debate. Uh, obviously, try to move forward a, a proposal that uh, uh, that respects taxpayers. And with that, uh, brings forward support for for short term funding, but there has to be. Listen, a government shutdown is is in no one's interest. It's not in the best interest of the people who work for the federal government. It's not in the best interest uh, of the American people. It's not in the best interest of the people we 
uh, we represent. And so uh, we think that uh, by pushing forward earnestly with this effort, uh, we hope to, uh, to garner the support necessary to move a CR. The, the reason I ask is because, look, you're a member of the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus. You, I think, have expressed some openness to if there is no path forward inside your conference to considering a discharge petition working with Democrats, what are the triggers to break off from your current path, for you personally, to break off from your current path and work with Democrats or move forward or try and push the Problem Solvers proposal out instead? Yeah, it's a bit of a hypothetical, but I, again, I, I think that moving the appropriations bills as we have will garner support for short-term funding to continue that process. I, of course, at some point, like many of my other colleagues, recognize two very important things. We don't want to uh, see a government shutdown. We want to avert giving that authority to the president. It never ends well. It's not uh, good for, for America or the American people. But at the same time, we recognize there's a slim House Republican majority and a Democrat Senate. Even if the Senate comes forward with something, there needs to be agreement between both parties <clears throat> in both houses. And, and that, by default or design, is what America is elected. It's a great point because there's no outcome here. There's no end game that doesn't involve Democratic votes. And yet members of your conference are saying if the speaker allows Democratic votes on a proposal, they're threatening his job. Well, I, with all the, no, yeah, go ahead. I'll say with, you know, with all the respect, I mean, the Senate's in the same boat, assuming that they'll just pass something and we're forced to accept it. At the end of the day, what we what we what I think is in our best interest as as, as a nation and, and certainly the House is to present a conservative offer that respects taxpayers. We know this when the Democrats controlled both houses, they forced trillions of dollars into the into the uh, economy that that fueled inflation, everything from gas to groceries on the rise. And by the way, I, I represent people in upstate New York who know their government and this you know, with all due respect, this, this president living in some kind of fog, expecting people to, to believe something they know isn't true. The economy is, 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 is certainly at risk. Uh, there are folks paying too much to get too little in return, and they want a government to respect them. So, you know, irrespective of uh, where we end in a bipartisan agreement, it's in the best interest of America that we come forward uh, with a conservative offer and negotiate from there. And we're hopeful, and, and I think the negotiations and conversations, which I've been very much a part of, right. uh, will generate that kind of support. Can I just ask you, before I let you go with the little time I have left, the, you have run tough races. You are a frontline member. You're kind of uh, in, uh, you're in the room right now. What's the political effect, do you think, on the fact that this intraparty warfare has broken out and continued over the course of nine months? It, it is, uh, we don't want to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The people we, that sent us here expect us to govern. And uh, uh, while we can't make those choices based on politics, certainly I recognize the people I represent uh, want me to be pragmatic. And at the end of the day, if I can bring people together uh, and be part of, an, uh, of a strategy that uh, strengthens uh, the American economy, supports the people we, uh, we serve and respects taxpayers, uh, I'll be at the table. All right, busy week ahead. Congressman Mark Molinaro, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, be well. So former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is painting an even more chaotic picture of the final days of the Trump presidency than was previously known. Our own Jake Tapper has some of those claims in her new book. Before he talks to her, he's going to join us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So we're hearing new stories of dysfunction, chaos, lawless alleged behavior in the final weeks of the Trump White House from former aide Cassidy Hutchinson. They include Chief of Staff Mark Meadows burning so many documents in his office that his suit smelled like a bonfire. That is one of the claims. Let's bring in our Jake Tapper, who has read the book. You're going to talk to her later today. Pretty stunning claims she makes. 
Indeed. Uh, she was the star witness at the January 6 hearings last year. And now she's back on the scene with a book telling her story from childhood to her courageous testimony, including all those years when she was loyal to the man she's now warning the country about, Donald Trump. It was just last summer that Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, became a star witness in the January 6 committee's hearing. And in her new book, Enough, Hutchinson paints the closing days of the Trump White House as even more chaotic and lawless than described in that shocking testimony. Quote, Cass, if I can get through this job and manage to keep Trump out of jail, I'll have done a good job, Meadows tells her. It's a front row seat to madness. At a mask-free Trump rally during the height of the coronavirus pandemic, former presidential candidate Herman Cain contracts the virus and later dies. We killed Herman Cain, Meadows tells her. But this does not change the White House's mask policy. In fact, during a visit to an N95 manufacturing plant, Hutchinson advises President Trump to remove his mask because his bronzer is smearing it. Time and again. At one point on the 2020 campaign trail, Meadows asks Hutchinson if she would take a bullet for President Trump. Yeah, sure, she responds. But could it be to the leg? I would do anything to get him reelected, Meadows tells her. And after the election, in the wild scramble to overturn its results, Hutchinson says Meadows was constantly burning documents in the chief of staff's fireplace. And at one point, leaked classified documents to far right wing media figures. Meadows constantly reassures his boss that he will work to overturn the election that Trump clearly lost. Quote, I was irritated that Mark gave the president false hope, Hutchinson writes. Of course, that's what the president wanted to hear, but he was damaging the country by concocting false rationales. Uh, thank you all very much. This is a theme in the book. Soon to be House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe both express concern to Hutchinson about the president erratically acknowledging he lost, then backtracking and saying he didn't. Both men blame Meadows. But it's Trump who is most erratic. After the U.S. Supreme Court refuses to take up the nonsensical lawsuit filed by Texas to overturn states that Biden won, Trump pushes Meadows, quote, why didn't we make more calls? We needed to do more. We can't let this stand, unquote. Trump continues in a statement that could have legal ramifications, quote, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. When multiple lawsuits and attempt to overturn the election do not come to fruition, January 6 becomes the failsafe. Much of Hutchinson's stories about that day were part of her congressional testimony. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. But in her book, Hutchinson reveals for the first time that she was groped by Rudy Giuliani backstage. Quote, he moves toward me like a wolf closing in on its prey, she writes, saying he put his hand up her skirt. Giuliani denied this happened. But even the horrors of January 6 were not enough for Hutchinson to resign. She stayed on with President Trump through the end of his term and sought to get a job with him post-presidency. The witness will please stand and raise her right hand. When she was called to testify before the January 6 committee, Trump-funded attorney Stefan Passantino told her to, quote, downplay her role as strictly administrative. She was an assistant, nothing more. 
Passantino says he did not advise her to mislead the committee. And Hutchinson says she was never told to lie to the committee. Quote, I don't want you to perjure yourself, Passantino insisted. Quote, but I don't recall isn't perjury, she says he told her. Another time, Hutchinson says, Passantino tells her, quote, we just want to protect the president. Jobs are dangled and then withdrawn from Hutchinson as she begins to cooperate with the committee. She is ultimately shut out of and then demonized by Trump world altogether. The rest and her courageous testimony is history. Now, a spokesman for Mark Meadows denies the allegations made about him in the book. The spokesman says the burning fireplace was an absurd mischaracterization and not at all what it was about. It had nothing to do with documents. It claims it was newspapers to get the fire going. Uh, Meadows spokesman also denies leaking classified documents to these right wing media figures. He calls that a completely ridiculous mischaracterization. He says the documents were declassified in regards to the we killed Herman Cain comment. Meadows spokesperson says it is offensive to suggest that this was Meadows initial reaction and that in the days after Cain's death, he was, quote, expressing exasperation that the media would blame the president for Mr. Cain's death. Very different, unquote. So that's the responses or response, multiple responses. But Jake, you say this book solves one of the big mysteries in Trump world. What is it? Well, we now know who told the committee all that information Uh, between Cassidy Hutchinson's second deposition and third deposition, when she began disclosing so much more information, even though she still had that lawyer funded by Trump world who kept telling her to keep saying, I don't recall, I don't recall. The answer is hinted at in the book, but never truly spelled out. But if you read between the lines, Cassidy Hutchinson and former Trump communications director and CNN contributor Alyssa Farah come up with a plan where Hutchinson tells Alyssa Farah everything she knows, and Farah then tells Congresswoman Liz Cheney what to ask Cassidy about in that third deposition. And that ultimately is how the truth finally got out. Poppy? That's fascinating. Jake Tapper, we appreciate it. Be sure to tune in to the lead today at 4 p.m. Eastern. Jake sits down with Cassidy Hutchinson to talk about her book and what she alleged happened inside the White House as protesters breached the Capitol. Really look forward to that interview. Yeah, no question. Also this morning, California's governor signing a series of laws aimed at protecting the rights of the LGBTQ community. The details and how long it will take to implement those laws, that's ahead. Also, President Biden hits the auto workers picket line today in a first for a sitting president. Well, in the next 48 hours, a potential preview of 2024 in Michigan. Both President Biden and former President Donald Trump heading to the Detroit area to speak with auto workers. While Trump has been preparing for his event, he's also working the campaign trail where he's made some claims that are interesting, to say the least. When I came here, everyone thought Bush was going to win. And then they took a poll and they found out Trump was up by about 50 points. Everyone said, what's going on right here? They thought Bush, because Bush supposedly was a military person. Great. You know what? He was a military. He got us into the uh, he got us into the Middle East. How did that work out? There has only been, listen to this, one such whale killed off the coast of South Carolina in the last 50 years. But on the other hand, their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. Nobody does anything about that. They're washing up and show. I saw it this weekend. Three of them came up. They wouldn't, you wouldn't see it once a year. Now they're coming up on a weekly basis. The windmills are driving them crazy. They're driving, they're driving the whales, I think, a little batty. That, that is indeed what people are saying. 
How do you feel about windmills, Phil Manning? Not nearly as passionately as former President Trump does, to say the least. Joining us now, CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, former deputy chief of staff to former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and who also served on the January 6th committee, Maura Gillespie, and senior Washington correspondent and uh, for Bloomberg, uh, Saleh Mosin. Guys, let's start with the idea that I don't think Governor Jeb Bush in Florida uh, launched the invasion of Iraq. The windmills thing has long been a fixation for the former president. Um, don't really understand where he's going with it. But like, if Biden had said any of that stuff on the, the stump, like, people would have lost their minds. 77-year-old Donald Trump says it, and it's like, eh. You know, it, it's interesting. I think that because Donald Trump has a lot of bluster and energy, people sometimes confuse that with being like rational and logical. Um, but, but all of that aside, what's really fascinating is that he has to sell that he is truly about union workers after four years of policies that were actually quite mixed, that didn't actually serve union workers. And so this strategy that he's employing now of uh, sort of sowing division between the, the union workers and their, their leadership is a really fascinating one. And it speaks to him trying to detract from the fact that his policies didn't necessarily serve these laborers. The White House is trying to push on the policy front out with a statement this morning saying, look, under Biden, 235,000 auto jobs have been created. That's their claim. And they say that's four times under Trump. The question is, is it just the union that actually wins out from the two of them being there this week as they continue to point at the CEO pay, continue to point at the hours they work, the, you know, what AI is going to mean? Does this just help the union just have both of them there this week? It also helps the whole Rust Belt. I'm from Ohio. When you have two candidates with that kind of pull coming into Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Indiana, and across those states, you're getting finally the attention from the country and policymakers on, on the East Coast in Washington that those people didn't really get. That's why Trump was elected. They were the forgotten man that he shined a spotlight on. And so now we have a Democratic presidential candidate who is uh, determined to make sure that he also is part of the effort to listen to them, to go and talk to them. So it's going to draw attention to the union vote itself, but also everyone else in that region, all the other economic sectors that are contributing to the economy and other people who are getting the bite from inflation, who suffered during COVID and who just want to be heard. You know, more what's interesting to me is it's, it's a great point. And if you talk to Biden economic officials, um, as I know you have every day, probably 50 times a day for the last two and a half years, so much of Biden's agenda was not necessarily, with the exception of the, emer the immediate rescue plan, was long-term, right? We want to build things that actually help communities or kind of sit and grow inside communities that have long been forgotten or have long been left in places like Ohio and Michigan um, and Wisconsin. And yet people don't seem to be feeling that uh, based on kind of the top-line economic polls, despite the macroeconomic numbers. Why do you think that is? We live in a society now where it's microwave. We need it immediately. And if it's not right before us, in front of us, tangible, where we can feel it, we don't really pay attention to it. So, I mean, think back when uh, Biden recently uh, announced the medications that are now, you know, he announced two medications that he's going to um, make available and free and things like that. That's not going to happen until well down the road, and he won't get credit for it. Um, so it's great to have these policies. It's great to have the Infrastructure Act. We have seen some projects being built, um, and you're seeing Republicans tout that, even though they didn't vote for it necessarily. But uh, we live in a world where we want to see it right now, and if we don't, 
and we're distracted by something else. And Trump is so good at distracting and pointing out, well, I'm here for you. He's coming in today as like, I'm a champion for union workers. It doesn't matter if that's true or not. He can say it to them and point out that Biden's not looking out for you. He's looking over for EVs. He's sending all the jobs to China. And he can just sit there and be, you know, a savior to them as he presents himself, but without getting fact-checked in real time. Explain the uh, electric vehicle issue that the Biden administration is pushing so hard and why it's concerning to these union auto workers, because many of the EVs are not made by union workers, right? Yeah. That's the c- contrast here, that Biden's going to have to straddle that tomorrow, today. Poppy, that just gets to the heart of it. Um, what the union workers see is that we have a president right now who wants to support electric vehicle production. That means less workers in factories, on assembly lines, less humans who are helping build those. Also, China has a lot of EV production, so Trump can come with his old adage of jobs being shipped to China. What the UAW workers uh, and union workers need to hear from Biden is that I will find a way to protect your jobs, even though I support the EV push. Can he do that? It's a fine line. I don't even think his half a century in Congress is going to help him with that. Um, but let's see. We're going to see him on the picket line. We still need we still need cars. We still need gas cars, right? We don't have the infrastructure right now to even have. If everyone were supposed to get an EV, we don't have the infrastructure to do it. We need. We don't have enough generating stations in this country to sustain that. So I think that's also an issue where. But that's he the point could, of the subsidies. Yeah. And he could talk about that, right? He right. could point out, okay, we need more generating stations. And I know people get all uh, nervous about nuclear, but we do need more nuclear generating stations in this country to be able to facilitate the energy needed uh, for EVs. And what these workers need is not false promises, right? Look at Lordstown, Ohio, <clears throat> where Donald Trump said, you know, uh, don't sell your houses, right? I will, <clears throat> excuse me, I will protect your jobs. And what happened was the factory didn't come back. So, again, a lot of bluster. But if you don't have the policy to back it up, Mm -hmm. what's the difference for people on the ground? Which is like the most amazing thing. Like, no one remembers that. He literally was promising people to their faces that he was going to save everything in Lordstown. And it shut down like three months later. I I do want to ask, Maura, as a uh, respected political communicator, the idea of, people are saying, much like the windmills, um, the idea that Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis will be holding a debate, which was just announced yesterday. I know the Biden team looks at, at uh, Governor Newsom as a, a good surrogate, an effective surrogate. Um, why is this happening? Ron DeSantis needs to have something of a jumpstart to his campaign. He's seen numbers kind of slope down. Uh, and this is an opportunity because a lot of people on the right think that Gavin Newsom will run for president. People have been kind of speculating, will the President Biden actually go through with running for president, even in 2024, uh, given his most recent polling numbers are really uh, pretty abysmal. So this is an opportunity for Ron DeSantis to go head to head with who he thinks will be running for president and position himself as the number one candidate over Donald Trump. Uh, This is really an opportunity for Ron DeSantis to kind of show what he's made of because he has not done well thus far in the first debate. We'll see what happens tonight. Do you think it's a good venue for him? I don't. <laughs> just being honest. Just some candid here from our <laughs> Republican that. strategist. Just being honest. <laughs> Maura, Natasha, uh, and Saleya. Thanks. Thanks, guys. New developments following that fentanyl death of a one-year-old at the daycare in Bronx. Prosecutors just released new images of a suspect leaving the building before emergency responders arrived. The latest on that probe ahead. And the city of El Paso grappling with the surge of migrants. Officials are warning 
that the influx isn't stopping anytime soon and shelter capacity is running out. Oscar Lesser is the mayor of El Paso and says his border city is at a breaking point. He's going to join us next. Stay with us. Welcome back. So cities uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border are taking action. They're trying to respond quickly to these rising numbers of migrants arriving. Just yesterday, the El Paso City Council voted to buy a middle school and turn it into an emergency migrant shelter. Before the vote, El Paso's mayor told council members the city found accommodations for more than 7,000 migrants and prepared more than 16,000 meals in just 10 days. Despite the efforts, Mayor Oscar Leeser says that his border city is at a breaking point, and he joins us this morning. We really appreciate you have you being with us, given all that you're going through. I want to begin with what one of the directors of the existing shelters there told our colleague Rosa Flores yesterday, that about 300 migrants slept in the street last night. And as I ask you this, I want to show images, I believe we have, of last December and last May, what you guys were going through then. Are you preparing for that again now? Yeah, we, we're preparing for making sure that we have roving teams and the roving teams go through El Paso and offer them shelter. And some of these people you see that are out there uh, that pr- select to sleep outside because they they want to be able to go on a, when people come by and they're looking for day workers, don't go day workers. Mm. Or some of them will sleep outside sacred Park church because their kids, their wives are in there. But we go in there, we have roving teams and we offer them all shelter. As a matter of fact, we've gone from four hotels to nine hotels and we housed uh, that everybody had a bed. We had over a thousand people last night. So it's an ongoing crisis as we've talked about. We know that the immigration process is broken until it's fixed. We need to continue to work together really on the other side, on the south side to be able to fix what's going on today. So our main responsibility is the safety of our community, but also to make sure that our visitors are safe and we help them to get to their next destination. Only 1% people are coming to El Paso. They're actually coming to the United States. You mentioned ongoing crisis. You've said the city is at a breaking point right now. I'm interested, how long can you go on like this, particularly as surges continue uh, cyclically? You know, and and the team here in El Paso has done an incredible job. The city, the county, we all work together to make sure that we provide a a bed and a warm meal for everyone. And uh, it, uh, but we are at a breaking point. We're we're running out of hotels, we're running out of space. And when I talked to Chief Owens from the Border Patrol, he told us to prepare for about 2,000 crossings a day. So that's something we're preparing for. You talked at the middle of, of the show, we actually went out and bought a school that had been closed for about three, four years, and we're gonna prepare that for an emergency shelter. We're actually, that school, school's on 19 acres, and we're gonna sit there and half of it will be completely apart, will be an emergency sheltering service, and the other half will be an animal services where they'll be, and we'll have an animal park out there, and they'll be able to come walk a dog, sit there and play with a dog so it helps them with mental health but or they can do none of the above because there'll be two separate facilities that they can uh, merge with because we we know that uh, mental health is one of the largest things that we need to help and work with given that many migrants mayor do not have money for transportation out of your city and other cities on the border are texas governor greg abbott's uh, buses where he's having them taken to other cities like here in new york city are those helping 
Well, well, who we worked with was the Office of Emergency Management for the state of Texas and the Office of Emergency Management in El Paso worked together with it. And we want to make sure that everybody that gets on a bus uh, signs a letter knowing that where they're going and make sure we know where those buses are going. We need to make sure that no one is sent to somewhere where they don't want to go. We want to make sure that we work with them. And, and that's uh, so far, that's how we're working. And we have said that we will work with them as long as it goes to where the destination of the asylum seeker, but also make sure that we communicate with the city where it's going, have a manifesto so they know they can prepare for them. On the federal level, do you feel like the administration has been responsive to the scale of your needs? Well, the city of El Paso couldn't do it on their own. It's an impossibility that we'd be able to fund these kinds of millions and millions of dollars. So we've been very thankful for the Secretary of Mallorca, the FEMA, that's actually given us the funding to move forward. But we, we do understand that funding may end and it would be an impossibility for a city like El Paso to be able to do that and make sure that people are not on the street and we continue to protect the safety of our community and also our, our um, visitors. So it's important that we continue to be partners with the federal government to help us fund an immigration system that's totally broken, that really needs a lot of help uh, moving forward. Didn't break yesterday, didn't break a year ago. It's been broken for quite a long time, and we need to move forward on a nonpartisan way of fixing the immigration system. All right, El Paso Mayor, Oscar Leeser, we know you're very busy. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I'll have a wonderful day. Well, new images just released following the fentanyl death of a one-year-old child at the Bronx daycare center. They appear to show a suspect leaving before emergency responders arrived. You can see him there. Authorities say he entered empty-handed and uh, from where he and his wife live next door. And two minutes later, he hurried out the back door through the bushes with shopping bags they believe contained fentanyl. His wife owns the daycare and is facing federal and state charges. Also, we should note a third person has been arrested in connection with the child's death. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a pair of new laws that really strike at the heart of America's culture wars. One of them requires gender-neutral bathrooms in schools by the summer of 2026. The second law prohibits school districts from banning books and other school materials based on race, gender, and sexuality. This comes after Newsom fought with the school board in Southern California over its opposition to textbooks that included gay rights icon Harvey Milk. Well, Senator Bob Menendez refusing to resign as he faces federal bribery charges, despite some fe some fellow Democrats calling for him to step down. How are New Jersey voters responding? Harry Enton is here to break it all down. Coming up next. And the charges are uh, formidable, and it'd probably be a good idea if he did resign. Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, the latest prominent Democrat to call on Senator Bob Menendez to resign. Menendez, however, says he will not step down and is denying the bribery charges against him. One New Jersey Democrat, Congressman Andy Kim, has already said he'll challenge Menendez in the Democratic primary. Joining us now with more on the political dynamics at play here, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. Okay, explain to me why Menendez is not willing to step down at this point. Yeah, so I think the number one thing you have to keep in mind is that the last time a Republican won a Senate race in the state of New Jersey was 51 years ago. It was all the way back in 1972. This is a state that's voted Democratic on the presidential election in every single election since 1992. So the idea that Menendez would lose a general election seems far-fetched to me. And more than that, he has won elections before when even as New Jersey voters said, he lacked high ethical standards. In 2018, 68% of New Jersey voters said Menendez lacked high ethical standards. 
Back in 2006, 62% of them said he lacked high ethical standards. So the idea that, oh my God, we're going to present new information to New Jersey voters who would say, therefore, Menendez didn't have the standards to be in the Senate. The fact is, they've already felt that way. And they not only elected him initially back in 2006, but they reelected him back in 2018 with that math. What about the primary? Okay, so if you can't beat him in a primary, or can't beat him in the general, how about in a primary, right? So let's take a look. Before Menendez was indicted, his standing with New Jersey Democrats, 58% approved him. That's the majority, right? Just 23% disapproved. You had that 19% that didn't know. Not too surprising for a senator. It's not like a president. So it's not shocking that you have that didn't know. But here's the question. With these new new corruption, these indictments, would that necessarily change the math? So I want you to keep an eye here. Pre-indictment, New Jersey Democrats on New Jersey politicians' corruption level. 49% of New Jersey Democrats said that New Jersey politicians were either very or somewhat corrupt. They already believe that they're corrupt. Just like in general? Just in general, they believe that they're corrupt. It's New Jersey, for goodness sake. So the idea... Not an excuse, Harry. Not necessarily an excuse. I'm just trying to explain where the voters might be. So the fact is, will these new charges make a difference? We'll wait and see. But Menendez has reason to be at least a little skeptical. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you, Thanks, buddy. The math is the math. Oh, I got it. I got it. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Well, if you needed any more proof that Taylor Swift's appearance at a Chiefs game Sunday was resonating with people other than just Poppy Harlow, people appear to be putting their money literally on the rumored couple. According to Fanatics, (laughs) Travis Kelsey was in the top five of jersey sales this weekend, surging more than 400%. He was likely driven almost exclusively by Swifties. One surprising Swift fan, the only Swift fan that matters, weighed in yesterday. Where do you fall on that? <laughs> Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, power couple in the NFL. Travis Kelsey's had a lot of big catches in his career. <laughs> this would be the biggest. Yeah, that's Patriots coach Bill Belichick, and he's actually responding to a reporter's question, which is notable in and of itself. He went to Taylor Swift's concert at Gillette Stadium earlier this year. After that performance, he called Swift tough and impressive. It's impressive to have Bill Belichick be a fan now of you. Now we know the way to Belichick's heart. If you want to get him to smile, loosen him up, then add, ask a difficult question. Also yeah. dogs. He loves Start dogs. So Taylor Swift and small him. dogs. He has a small little dog. So you're dog. telling me Belichick has a soft spot. He has a soft spot. Wow. We all have soft spots. You just okay. got to find the way right. in. Fair. And we just did. We just did. Thank you, Harry. Thank Thanks you for being with us. <laughs> have a great day. We'll leave you with this. And we will see you back here tomorrow. See you in a new Central is after this. <laughs> Is that how you think she danced? That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.